0: Hello and welcome back to Mining Stock Daily with me, Paul Harris. Today we're talking about copper exploration in Latin America. And have great pleasure to be joined by Daniel Earle, President and CEO of Solaris Resources. Good morning, Daniel.
1: Good morning. Thanks for having
0: me. You're more than welcome, Daniel. It's been a, a few months since we last spoke, so a lot to catch up on. Um, and given that we're in sort of in December now, um, I think it'd be a good opportunity to, you know, let's have a, a review of the year before we start talking about uh, or getting really up to date about uh, Solaris and your Warinza copper project in Ecuador. Um, 2022, you know, looking back through your press releases, 2022 has been a, a, a year of growth an expansion of your Warinsa project in Ecuador. There's been uh, yeah, expansion to the, what you already knew. There's been a number of new discoveries. Um, so, you know, let's start off, you know, how has 2022 been for the company from an exploration point of view? How has Warinza advanced and sort of, what do you know now compared to what you knew at the start of the year?
1: Yeah, it's um, in, in in terms of um, you know the progress this year on the expiration front, uh, or let's say the pro- project front, just to take in uh, um, you know bro- a broader spectrum of the activities. It, it's been a year of of essentially delivering on the objectives that we had set out, or even over delivering, I would say, because you know if, if if you recall from the beginning of the story, we we you know shared our view that. Rinsul would be a world-class project and we, we quantified that for people in terms of the goals with respect to uh, resource growth that we intended to deliver or foresaw the potential to deliver and, and so we had set out a target of reaching a billion tons in an open pit with, with robust grades and economics to go along with that and um, in April we, we, we published uh, a resource that reflected 18 months of drilling essentially up to the end of 2021 and that resource came in at a billion and a half tons and um, and so that is a global scale resource I think um, when you consider that that's really just the central deposit it's within a cluster of three other discoveries around that which we're now working on you know defining the east deposit then you see that even from that billion and a half tons there's still a runway for multiple times growth but the largest greenfield, Uh, Copper projects that have gone into production this cycle, so these would be projects like Tech Resources' QB2 project or Anglo-Americans' KOVECO project. Those are 1.4 and 1.2 billion tonnes of reserves respectively. So this was the global scale that we were talking about. But of course, the the really special part of the RINSA project is the robust economics that it offers. And there's really the 2 factors at play here, of course, the the high-grade starter pit, so the grade distribution which is uh, quite favourable and unique to to this deposit when we look at the global comp set out there. And then the really low cost structure that you have in Ecuador, both on a CapEx, like particularly on the CapEx side, but also uh, in terms of uh, operating costs as well. And and so this was essentially the delivery of what we had promised to our shareholders or or kind of outperformance um, on that key kind of deliverable. And then really from there, um on the project side it's it's been a continuation of that growth so that resource reflected 91 drill holes into the central deposit out of a total database of 99 holes and it took in a portion of the east deposit that overlapped with central that was discovered the east deposit was discovered late in that resource drilling program and so the program for this year really focuses on drilling out that east deposit this is going to be the largest contributor to the overall growth in resources, but then we're also trying to deliver high value, high impact growth in, in expanding the size of the starter pit, which is a key contributor uh, to, the, to the robust economics of this project. So those, those are the two focuses of resource drilling around the project. We're doing exploration drilling um, outside of that and, and uh, identifying new targets uh, for that exploration drilling program. And then, of course, de-risking the project. And this is the work that we're doing, you know, with our partners in the community and with the government to try and de-risk that world-class development proposition that we've, you know, begun to define at So
0: Thank you, Daniel. Now, um, you mentioned that the resource was in April 91 holes. How many holes have you drilled this year? And so when you come to do your resource update, your next resource, how many holes do you anticipate that will have?
1: We'll almost will almost double uh, the database in terms of the meterage that's available for the resource uh, at the time that we update the uh, uh, the resource again. So um, you know, in terms of meterage, it'll be near nearly nearly double.
0: Okay, and when do you anticipate that um, you'll be doing that uh, resource update?
1: We we haven't shared a, a, a timeline for that. Um, it'll, it'll be done at the logical point of, of its conclusion, which is essentially defining that yeast deposit and then the growth potential in the, in the starter pit. But if you look at last year's program, then you get a useful guide. So, so that, that resource that we delivered in April, uh, the drilling database was cut off in November. So you can see the kind of Delta there, I think for a resource update. Uh, you'd have a more compressed schedule because it'll be easier to actually uh, execute with the template in place. But um, but that gives you a rough idea of, of what the potential timelines could be. When we have a firm timeline, then of course we'll you know we'll share that with the market shareholders.
0: It sounds like it'll be sometime in the first half of 2023. That's a
1: reasonable, very reasonable guess.
0: Okay, um, I want to sort of um, underline or underscore your comments about the unique scale of the the project and the deposit. Um, I don't know if you happen to see the Glencore Investor Day this week. Um, You know, Glencore CEO Gary Nagel basically said that, you know, Glencore has the projects to double its production from let's say 800,000 tons a year to 1.6 million tons a year. He said, nobody else has got projects. We've got projects, but he's not going to develop them until the market is screaming for it. So, That obviously a very bullish statement, but it also points to the the scarcity of projects and the the coming supply deficit in in the copper market. Um, How how do you view the the setup for copper?
1: Well, I I think that the the comments were exactly on point about the scarcity of projects and the looming deficits that are coming, indeed structural deficits. Uh, These are open-ended sequential year after year deficits that will be compounding. Uh, in terms of their impact uh, in 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 the uh, in the copper market out through the end of this decade and 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 beyond. Um, so I think all of that is exactly correct. I think that a lot of what companies represent in terms of their project pipelines in copper, there are uh, if you look at the the evidence from you know the recent production history in copper, and as the guidance comes through from these large companies, you realize that actually delivering on that pipeline for myriad reasons, is more difficult than, than, than simply talking about it. Like for instance, with Glencore, if you look at their guidance, three-year guidance that they put out for copper production um, versus the consensus estimates, you see that uh, for next year they're short by approximately 100,000 tons, which on its own would be another mid size mine that the copper industry needs to deliver to make up for that shortfall. Uh, but but when you look when you see the rest of the companies come through with their guidance, I think you'll see a repeat of what we saw last year, and and these are these are not one-offs uh, or or even recent kind of developments. This is um, you know just a chronic issue in the mining sector of kind of under delivery relative to you know what expectations in. In, in the marketplace may be for metal production. And I think in copper you can you can safely say that a lot of the reasons behind this are structural issues that are going to be with us uh, for the long term. So all of this contributes to, I think the tightness that we see in the market. Remember, if you go back to you know the second quarter of this year, when you had expectations around global growth and therefore copper demand, roll over, you saw a huge impact in terms of Copper price. The Copper price came off something like 30%, which would normally equate to a loosening of inventories globally of something of the order of about 400,000 tonnes. We didn't see anything like that actually play out in the market. Inventories remained incredibly tight, both in China and in uh, you know the rest of the world. And so that's why as soon as the fears around global growth started to abate even slightly, you saw a snapback in terms of the the copper price, not back to the highs, but certainly uh, well up off off the lows. Okay, and essentially the reason for that is that supply uh, underperformed so strongly. If you look at Chile in particular, this is the world's largest copper producer, about almost a third of global copper supply. This was a good year for copper pricing. And yet, supply out of Chile was down uh, approximately eight percent, and that just speaks to, I think, this 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 issue that uh, is going to continue to play a, a role in keeping the copper market tighter than people would otherwise expect.
0: I, you know, I completely agree with you, Daniel. And you know, just this week, I published for Mining Journal a, a feature about Codelco and how it's going to lose its position as the number one copper producer in the world, falling from you know 1.7. Million tons a year down to about 1.5, 1.4 over the next year or two, and it will be stay stuck there for a while, uh, largely because of you know execution issues uh, of, of a, a number of massive projects. Um, and regarding the copper price, copper's uh, edging towards four dollars a pound again. Four dollars a pound historically is a very very high copper price. Um, China's now sort of easing its COVID restrictions. So um, the economic analysts are looking at um, you know, China's growth is going to pick up. So it seems like the setup for copper next year, 2023, is very, very strong, very, very positive. Do you, do you expect the copper price to really sort of keep pushing past $4 next year?
1: Yeah, well, I, I I think I think if you if you look at the global economic picture, you you've got um uh you know, uh, Europe likely in recession, the US rolling over to be either side of recession, and then in China, which is out of sync, of course, uh, you've got a recovery underway. Um, but, but if you focus on China, this represents about 50% of the demand side for, for copper. You know, growth forecasts at the beginning of the year were for 2022, 2022 to represent about 5.5% growth in the Chinese economy. And of course, with the, the issues that they had in the, in the property sector and then the impacts of zero COVID, they've significantly underperformed those levels. So I think when we look back on this year, we'll be talking about growth in the range of two to 3%, so essentially cut in half. Yet when you look at Copper consumption, Copper demand is, is actually higher in China because of the increased use intensity, because of the you know, energy transition, the build out of the grid and so on that's underway and continuing in China. This is a real point of emphasis uh, in Chinese economic planning and policy. So, you know, what we saw in China was that copper demand was increasing with the traditional end uses uh, you know, kind of being more than fully offset by the growth that we saw in the grid build out, which was up about 10%, that component of demand. And, um, and then these renewable areas where, where that component of demand was up something like 80%. So it's not purely about um, economic growth because we've got this uh, tailwind of uh, increased use intensity through, you know, energy transition, and and that's more advanced in China. It's becoming more advanced in in, in Europe, of course, because of you know the increased emphasis around energy security and renewables and so on, uh, coming out of the energy crisis. And then and then the us is, is is coming along in the in in the rear so i think yeah sorry go ahead paul
0: no no i was just going to sort of thank you for your sort of comments and insight before going on to another question but uh, i didn't mean to sort of cut you off
1: yeah no so i was just trying to bring it all home in terms of the copper price so we, we've got a a reasonable copper price at the moment at the moment i think that with that economic um you know backdrop uh you you should be expecting that uh, the, the the copper price um, with these tight fundamentals, which I think are going to remain tight, is going to be well supported. But I think getting getting back to you know the prior highs um, uh, from earlier this year and getting the new highs is something that has to wait until um, you know the 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 global economic picture you know improves and some of these you know uh, uh, energy transition driven um, you know, uh, demand increases begin to outstrip the ability of industry to supply, and that's when you're looking, you know, to 2024 and 2025 for those for those de- deficits to begin to emerge. And I think that's really when we can begin um, expecting that we're going to be seeing the potential for you know new highs in, in in the copper price, and certainly building out towards the end of the decade from there.
0: Thank you, Daniel now um you mentioned uh, at the start that it's been a tumultuous year for the company um it seems you've had a lot of exploration success you've been delivering on your sort of promises and goals there um but it's been a difficult year for for juniors solaris included and even some of the miners um just looking at your your share chart you you know you hit a low of $4.57 after the copper price came down um, that's coming off the back of a 52-week high of $17, so that, that uh, must have been quite a, a sort of humbling moment in time. Um, how you know, you've since recovered about 30% from that low to about $6.20 uh, per share. How does taking it, your share price taking that kind of hit? How does that potentially sort of change your your goals or your focus, or, or, or does it?
1: Well, I think as a management team, you can't get too caught up in, in in the extremes of you know kind of share price movement. So, you know, the 17 was probably too high for where the stock was at the time. If you look at the chart, it it came on low volume right at the end of the year, um, and the lows are probably too low. If, if you look at the industry generally, you, you you get guidance on what's representative. So, you know, we talked about the copper price coming off 30 percent or so. The largest cap producers, so companies like Freeport and Antofagasta. Those companies were off 50 to 60%. And obviously as a junior, you expect to be down more than that in a correction, and, and of course, up more uh, in a uh, in, in, in a market rally. And I think, but I think in the case of Solaris, you had some idiosyncratic factors kind of come together to really produce an outsized result in, in terms of the sell-off of the stock. So we came through in particular in November and, and now this month. Uh, a period of very heavy warrant exercise. And these these began, you know, the funding for these through short sales and so on started uh, being felt in the market as early as September and October. Um, so that was something like $25 million of warrants that were exercised. Included in that would be about $15 million of warrants that our executive chairman exercised. And, and those were at a premium to the market. The date that he exercised those, those were at nearly a 40% premium to where the stock was trading, which speaks to you know, his view of value in, 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 in the company. Um, but nevertheless, that still leaves a, 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 a large, a large amount of funding that has to take place through the market. And that puts a lot of pressure on the stock. When you combine that on a bear market tape with the kind of unwind of momentum trading, we had a lot of stock that was built up because of the prior outperformance in quantitative, you know, technically driven funds, uh, hedge funds and so on. Um, that being unwound, the kind of the book clearing and tax loss selling that happens at this time of the year. You put it all together and, and that's the kind of result that, 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 that you get. And as a management team, you can't get uh, bought into, uh, you know, kind of the moves at, at either extreme. You know, we've really got to stick to the strategy that we have. Now, of course, we're not impervious to market developments. You have to take stock of the evolution of the market and adjust strategy as you, as you go. And so really, if you think about, uh, in respect of our company, you know, how that plays out in terms of exploration, it's really a focus on uh, high impact, high value uh, um, um, growth that we're trying to deliver and high impact, high value results that we're trying to deliver through the exploration program. And so this comes back to, you know, the resource growth that we're targeting, both in, 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 in attempting to, uh, double the size of the starter pit that we have, this is going to have an outsized impact on the economics of the project. And then the growth at East, while this is overall resource growth, uh, the East deposit and the central deposit overlap and they fit within a common uh, pit shell. So there are large synergies, direct synergies uh, in, 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 in that growth, which I think lends itself to, you know, that uh, a higher impact in terms of um, 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 that growth. And then in terms of the exploration, Okay, so instead of trying to drill off the West deposit, which is a very large uh, area of mineralization, we've simply come in there and put a fan of holes uh, from the discovery platform to just show people that there is a large target there um, you know, with, with potential to host a very significant resource were we to undertake that resource drilling in the future. And then I think the most exciting uh, drilling that we're doing would be um, at the self deposit. This was, you'll recall the most recent discovery that we've made in January of this year, very large target area, something like 25 kilometers by 2 kilometers or so, with the discovery hole being at the south end of that target. And we've come back into that target, instead of you know, exploring through the drill bit, we've come back in with a sampling program. Okay, so a comprehensive sampling and mapping program to try and better understand the architecture of that large uh, porphyry system, that south. And we've identified an area approximately one and a half kilometers to the north of the Discovery drill hole where we've got outcropping high-grade mineralization, both supergene and hypogene, uh, or secondary and primary uh, mineralization. And that represents a target with with values at surface um, very similar to what we'd see in the starter pit of central. That represents a target that could deliver for us a second starter pit. And and that's what I'm talking about in terms of focusing on high impact, high value uh, growth and exploration uh, with the program that we have.
0: Thank you, Daniel. I I do want to talk about plans for next year, Um, but before we get there, one one sort of final question on, let's say, general market aspects. Recent months have seen Chinese companies stepping up, increasing their presence in Latin America. Um, A couple of months ago or a few weeks ago, we had the, Shangxi investing in Seoul gold in Ecuador as well. And today it was announced that uh, Cordon Minerals is gonna enter into a $100 million joint venture with JCHX of China. Uh, JCHX already owns some of uh, Cordon Minerals. China seems to be very clear, You know, the, the messaging here seems to be very clear. China wants copper, China knows it's gonna need more copper, and it really wants to position itself to be able to get access to assets. Um, are you starting to have conversations with Chinese companies? Uh, <laughs>
1: well, no, look, I think you're you're right on the money in terms of um your uh, your 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 comments um about uh, China. China is, is absolutely all in on their electrification strategy. This is for you know geopolitical uh, reasons as much as it is for industrial strategic reasons. This is a country that wants to dominate. Um, the, the key technology sectors around the energy transition, and if if you look at China, you know they've got the largest. They're already dominating some of the key areas in the renewables with a dominant position in the solar space. They've got the largest uh, company in the battery space. Um, they've got. Uh, uh, some of the largest companies in electric vehicles in China, where they dominate the top 10 in that sector, and and so on and so forth. And and and, and this energy transition, of course, it has to be accompanied by a large-scale build-out in uh, the power infrastructure in the country. And um, the scale of all this absolutely boggles the mind. You're talking about, you know, investments of two to three hundred billion dollars a year which really uh, uh, puts um, some of the developments in the United States uh, uh, around the Inflation Reduction Act into perspective in terms of the scale that's required there. And and all all of this contributes to that increased use intensity in the Chinese economy that I was talking about in respect of copper. So even in a year where growth is getting cut in half, you still have growth in terms of copper demand in that country. And I think it's not a surprise that we're now starting to see these Chinese state-owned enterprises and affiliated companies um, after the People's Party Congress meeting, uh, going out and now starting to act on uh, that kind of, you know, sh- strategy that would have been passed on down through the provincial regulators and the state-owned enterprise executive teams um, at the People's Party Congress and the meetings, the technical meetings and working group meetings um, that, that would have come along uh, alongside or immediately following. Um, that famous speech by uh, uh, Xi Jinping. So you're starting to see this play out. We're very much at the beginning um, of this evolution in the M&A market. So I've spoken about M&A before. I I think that the the broad phases of the M&A market in in metals remain the same from cycle to cycle. So the the first phase, of course, is uh, uh, um, operates with a focus on uh, cash generative assets, producing assets. This is dominated by the Western companies um, for obvious reasons. And then it evolves as the cycle matures. It evolves to focus on development stage assets. And then this again, uh, for obvious reasons, is is is, is dominated by uh, Chinese companies. You know because they've got expertise in terms of uh, low cost construction, low cost equipment, low cost labor, mobilization of workforces, management of supply chains, and and all the rest of it. It lends themselves to you know to dominance in in, in in that area. And I think that's the transition that we're we're beginning to see. And that'll only continue to grow as, as the calendar rolls over into next year and beyond. I think this is going to be a dominant theme as we look forward in, in, in the market. Now, when you look at Ecuador, you mentioned that um Jiangxi, which is one of the world's largest. Uh, copper miners took an equity stake in Solgold. I think what that reflects is the Chinese interest in Ecuador. This is a jurisdiction that has a very strong relationship uh, with China. China is the, the dominant uh, uh, sovereign creditor to Ecuador. China has uh, large scale investments throughout the resource sector. So they've got nearly hundred percent offtake in terms of the oil production coming into the country. They operate the largest uh, public private Hydroelectric plant in the country, and they operate the largest mine in the country. So um, you know, so Ecuador welcomes Chinese investment. It's an attractive jurisdiction because of the geological potential of the country. Projects like Solgolds Golds and like our project, um, but then also because of the environment uh, for investment that 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 this administration under Guillermo Lasso has created with the lowest effective tax rate in South America and the fastest permitting timelines for greenfield projects on offer. So I think it's all of those things coming together and you can expect that, you know, Solaris would be, you know, a focus area for those companies as well.
0: Okay, very uh politically answered. Thank you Daniel. Um okay, now um 2023. What what are the sort of main plans and goals for next year? Where do you want to get Solaris resources to?
1: Well, the, the key. So we're going to continue with the growth pr- pr- program as I as I articulated. So we're gonna we're gonna continue to expand on the starter pit. We have a goal of uh, of taking that resource, which in which in all categories currently about two hundred eighty seven million tons, out over five hundred million tons with this drilling program, and then significant overall resource growth by drilling out uh, the east deposit. And then I articulated some of the expiration or the immediate expiration plans. You'll see additional drilling at the West deposits, not resource drilling, but just showing people, demonstrating the the size of that deposit, where we have drilled a a fan of holes around the compass, it's still open in every direction. I'm particularly excited about the work that we've done at the self deposit with this comprehensive mapping and sampling program, identifying a high grade uh, area of mineralization at surface that we're going to be drilling uh, early in the year, and then we're going to continue to advance uh the regional programs. So that's basically what we're doing on the exploration front. The part that operates in the background is the technical program. So we've got comprehensive, uh, we're already, I think, internally beyond uh, what would be required for a scoping study and, and continuing to advance the technical programs in terms of, you know, mine planning, site layout, uh, you know, conf- configuration of all of the infrastructure and alternatives available around that the metallurgical testing program, which is a comprehensive program ongoing at FL Smith in, in, in Salt Lake City, and then environmental and permitting work uh, uh, to go alongside it, technical work. Okay, and then, and then really from there, it's the work that we continue to do with the communities, which is a point of focus for the company and has been from the beginning, and our government partners, which play a really critical role in terms of de-risking the project. So one of the key deliverables that I think we can expect in the near term is the full government ratification of an investment protection agreement uh, for the development of the warrinsa project. And this is critical because it really locks in place the regulatory environment around the project and then also those low tax rates with the incentives provided for by this government. And it locks both of those items in place. So essentially regulatory and tax stability uh, for the life of the agreement out to 2041 and renewable for 25 years beyond that. And that's a key part of the overall de-risking of this project, together with, you know, continuing to advance the permitting timeline in line with the government's uh, publicly announced timeline for this project, which is to see it permitted in in 2024.
0: Well, I wish you the best of luck uh, on that, Daniel. It sounds like uh, next year is going to be another news heavy year for Solaris Resources. Solaris Resources trades on the TSX under SLS and on the OTCQB under SLSSF. Daniel Earn, President and CEO, thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much, Paul. Appreciate it.
0: And stay tuned for more from Mining Stock Daily.